Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into true crime cases through the lens of a trained investigator and former prosecutor turned judge. If you are sensitive to expletives, anatomical descriptions, and accurate descriptions of true crime scenes, this podcast may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Megan. And we have a very interesting case today, Megan. But before we jump to it, I want to dedicate this episode to my son Jacob's friends that I know listen. So this is for you, Gibby, Tyler, and Peter. Thank you for listening each week to the podcast. Thank you for being eager for new episodes. Sometimes Jacob even texts me and says, hey, Tyler says it's time to release a new episode. Like, man, we release twice a week. Most true crime podcasts don't do that. They're anxious to hear two old ladies talk. They are. And most of all, thank you so much for giving Jake shit about it too. Oh, even better, right? I love it. May you all take something valuable away from this case because I think that all people, especially young people, with their whole life ahead of them can learn from this. And this was actually a listener suggestion that came at a really perfect time. I got sucked deep into the research quickly. I read a book and then court transcripts, which you know are always fascinating. I love court transcripts. Read the court transcripts. So thank you, Allie, for this suggestion. This is actually, this case took place in her hometown. And she knew that this was exactly the kind of case that we would find extremely interesting. And I don't think that it's heavily covered. At all, I mean, I didn't find any other podcasts about it. Um, oh, even better. So, yeah, you know, we, we have a tendency to do that, and then all of a sudden other podcasts come up with, with these cases. Hey, so that's great, right? I, yes, yep, I love it. Getting out there even more so people understand the uh, victim stories mm-hmm. in these cases. Is this a victim case? It is, and but there's many layers to this case, Megan. So I want everybody to get comfy. We're going to do a deep dive. You know anytime that Charnel reads books... We're doing a deep deep diving, right? And we're going to spend some hours together. We're not actually too far away from our hometown, Megan, that we're just going to travel about uh, 40 minutes away from Fort Wayne in Huntington, Indiana. Oh, I know where Huntington is. Yes. There's a college there. There is. Yes. A cute little liberal arts college. (laughs) Which we're familiar with. Yes. And this community is literally exactly like our own. So if you guys are local listeners to us, this entire time I was picturing our town when I was writing this and it's, it is just, it's staggering that this could happen. And and I want to set it all up appropriately for you just so you can all feel it. Even if you're not from a small rural town, Huntington is very much a God-fearing community. You know, they have, they love their Friday night football games. Um, at the local high school, which this happened in like 1988, 1989. The crime happened early 1989, but I'm setting the stage really in 1988, okay, is where we're going to start. Which doesn't seem like too long ago for some of us. Right. And realistically, I guess, I mean, it really was, I suppose, but that gives you even more, think even more of what small towns were like then, as well, because they were even more tight knit than were. they are and today. You felt safe in yeah. small towns. Everybody knows everybody. Yep. 
for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. They also knew your business and could come and tell your parents when you stayed out later than you should have or when you weren't in the right place. Not that we were, because I was actually even still really young back then. Yeah, yeah. But still. Oh, yeah, I wasn't in kindergarten yet. But I I agree. And it's interesting how you just said all of those things because you're going to watch all of that stuff come true. Everything that you just said, especially the indicating of the everyone seems to know everyone else's business or do they? We think we do. And that becomes very important here. So we're going to start this case in Huntington North High School, 1988, where three unlikely friends end up committing Huntington's most heinous crime to date. So our perpetrators here, but I'm going to tell you about them because this is a teen case, Megan. These our are perps are teenagers. Our perps are teenagers. And we're going to talk about John Velasquez. He was known as Johnny V, Jared Wall, and Eric Esch, which if you Google Eric Esch, no, I am not talking about the wrestler. There oh. is apparently... So you Googled him and up come all these WWE... Yes, and I was very confused <laughs> for a hot minute. He but is, He is now a wrestler. Mm-hmm. I want you guys at first to understand where these kids were coming from as individuals before we get into the crime that is shocking and still pretty hard to comprehend. So we'll start with John Jesus Velasquez. He's a little different than the typical student at North Huntington. He wore baggy pants. Now remember, this is 1988. He listened to rap and hip hop music, and he had moved from Lorraine, Ohio, which was twice the size of Huntington at the time just two years prior to 1988. So it was his sophomore year is when he moved. He became popular at the first school dance. At first, he was a little awkward in the school. But then when he attended the high school's first school dance, he showed Huntington North High School what break dancing was. Oh, yeah. That was super popular in the late 80s. Yes, because he had... Um, Lorraine, Ohio is just outside of Cleveland. So Johnny V really thought of himself as being pretty hood and kind of a big deal. Yeah, he he was an urban kid. Yeah, he can do these things that these country folk had never seen before. And he left an impression and people really thought that that was pretty cool. He brought Footloose to the community. He He was their Kevin Bacon. He was, he (laughs) was for, for a hot minute. Yep. So because of the way that he dressed, and especially after his breakdance routine, rumors circulated that John Johnny V had been in a gang. Oh, wow. Which made him seem all the more de- like dangerous. And although this was not true, Johnny V rolled with it because it gave him a rep that he- Girls was, love yeah, bad a boys. A bad boy, right? right? He's wearing this like a badge of honor. In reality, his father was Cuban and his mother was from Puerto Rico, but students just typically thought that he was Mexican because of his last name. Okay. Velasquez. Not knowing much about different cultures and just make the assumption at that point. Of course, because this is a small rural town America. Most conservative rural America. Most of them hadn't traveled outside of the county. I can see this. (laughs) I I know these students. We Mm -hmm. know these people. We absolutely do. And how he came about the nickname Johnny V didn't surprise me either because Velasquez was too hard to pronounce. So when he... Imagine that. Such a common name too. But at the time... Yeah, I'm assuming there weren't a lot of Hispanic kids at the school. None. Nope, nope, nope. Uh, As a matter of fact, he had, Johnny had became really good friends with another dark hair and dark eyed boy named Brandon Lisanikia. Okay. Was he Polish? 
Um, I'm not sure. It never really talks about where Brandon came from. He will come up several times. Okay. He's, he's not a perpetrator, but he is a key figure in this case. All right. Good to know. So Brandon befriended Johnny V and was like, listen, as soon as he heard his name, he's like, you can't go by Johnny Velasquez. People are never going to be able to pronounce that. Look at my last name, Lisa, Lisa Nikia. It was too hard for them. So kids started calling me Brandon Listerine. You know, he's like, we got to we gotta come up with something else. So Brandon would sometimes be referred to just as like Brandon L or, or uh, Brando or something like that. I can't quite remember now, but it, it's really not oh, important. Who didn't have nicknames in high yes. school anyway, right? Brandon was like, we're, we're going to call you Johnny V. And that's how he kind of helped him acclimate to the school with this new Which only made yeah, his image better. Mm-hmm. Now, Johnny lived in a nice house. His father was an accountant. His mother actually worked within the school system. All right. And Johnny liked the movie Colors. I don't know if you'll remember this, Megan. It was released in 1988, earlier that year. And Johnny had actually rented it and shown it to Brandon. Now, according to IMDb, because this movie comes up a couple of times in this case, so I I had to Google it. Is that an, is that that's not a Spike Lee African American movie, is it? No, no. According Why do to, I remember colors? Well, because I'm, I want to Google. I'll let you tell me. <laughs> it is yeah. It is about an experienced cop and his rookie partner <gasps> that patrol the streets of East Los Angeles while trying to keep the gang violence under. Oh. Okay. And I did not make note of it, but the police officer was a huge um, actor at the time. Well, and I apologize because I'm sure it was a it was a well-known movie. And I remember a 1988 film. So so right here. But um, I was 11 and I don't just I just don't recall Ah, it. Robert Duvall. Oh, and and Sean Sean Penn. Penn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, and okay. Dennis Hopper was the director. Yeah, got it. Yep. So it was, it was a big deal at the time, but honestly, Johnny's parents did not allow him to watch movies like that. So he rented it and his mom knew that he had rented a movie from, you know, remember Blockbuster or video connection or family Family video, video. all those places. So she knew that her and that Johnny and Brandon had rented a movie, but wasn't, I mean, they're teenagers at this point in time. She wasn't like hardcore monitoring what they're watching. They are 16, 17 year old kids, right? Didn't you do the same thing? Of course. Yeah. But Johnny knew that his mom would not be okay with him watching this type of movie. It was just too scandalous of the time. But Johnny really liked gangs. He was, he was into that mentality of guns and gangs and really thought that that held a higher power of of standard you know like oh you're you're a badass if you are uh, a part of a gang okay so that's a little bit about Johnny V and uh, now I'm going to tell you about Jared Wall now Jared Wall is a native to Huntington he was born in Huntington he always attended Huntington schools he unlike Johnny V who had moved his sophomore year you know he's he's a native. He's born and raised. Probably his parents graduated from the same high school as they did. Yes, he did. yes. And Jared Wall is very popular. Uh, he's he's wasn't a large kid, but he worked out to gain a bunch of muscle at the pressure. Let me just break this down in his family dynamic. We are jocks. We are athletes. Got it. You will not be weak. We don't talk about our emotions. That is not something that we talk about. And you better be tough. Boys, don't cry. Be a man. Yep. Go work out. Yep. And and that is the thing. When he was 
kind of small for his age. Um, at one point in time, he was like five, six and kind of skinny. He busted his ass to gain muscle and work out and meet those standards that his father had for him and, and his siblings. Um, he had a brother. Um, now because he was so short, he didn't play basketball, but he was a track star, super, super fast and a running back for the football team. Okay. Really good football player. He was class president, his freshman and junior year. He was an honor roll, smart student and Sunday school teacher for the smallest church members, 18 months to five years old something that he took very seriously every Sunday. There was even a story about how he once dressed up as a shepherd and brought in his 4-H project because he's also a 4-H kid. Oh, we know these kids. We this do. is rural. The, this is my son that I am yeah. describing right now, except mine does play basketball. I mean, it's it is scary, honestly. But he brought his 4-H project, some sheep in to the church, dressed as a shepherd, to really reiterate for these children what a shepherd is, was, looked like, all of those things, and, and, you know, put in some metaphors about Uh, your herd and He sounds like a good kid. He was. He is. He, I mean, by all accounts, up until what happens, Jared Wall was an outstanding child, the kind of child that most, it's like, you know, teacher and parents' wet dreams are made out of. Okay? Um, He was an excellent student very intelligent. He was also a part of what is called campus life, which is a church group in the school that most kids were a part of, actually. Now, Jared was very artistic. He loved to draw, but this was not something that he shared in common with his parents. No, I was just saying that's not going to be encouraged. No, we are sports families. There is no time for sensitivities, no time for creativity. Arts for girls. Yes, he very much had to put his artistic side on the back burner to focus on his track and football um, accolades that he is going to receive in high school. All right. He also had a winning personality. Like everyone liked him. But there was one person in Jared's life that did share his love for art. And that was his uncle, Derek. This is his father's brother. When Jared was younger, Derek lived nearby in Huntington, so he was able to spend a lot of time with him. They would paint and draw together. That's how they bonded. He loved how his uncle Derek would give him constructive criticism to make him a better artist without being cruel about telling him something just sucked, right? That's a good teacher. Yes. And probably the same angle dad should have taken in terms of his athletics. For sure. Most definitely. That is not the angle his father took. I'm feeling it. I know those dads. (sighs) Yes. Something, you know, his father also just kind of seemed, I think, to have an issue with the fact that here his his brother is um, clearly winning the affections of his son over something that he doesn't understand and that he doesn't really want to nurture in his son. He doesn't want him to be an artist. That's not send, you know, he sent Jared the message that being an artist is not in your future. We will not encourage this frivolity. Yep. So his father was also a, a middle school teacher and coach. Was he a gym teacher? Um, I, I feel it in my core. Honestly, I don't know. I don't recall if it even said I didn't make note of it. You said enough with coach. Mm, yeah. I. Not that there aren't fantastic coaches out there, oh, but this yeah. is the late 80s and we know his mindset. Exactly. And he is. And that very well was his mindset. And he even testifies, testifies later to it. 
Okay. So we're not even saying something that the dude probably wouldn't say about himself. Do or, you want me to take us, take us way back to, do you know how I'm picturing this kid as the Emilio Estevez character from The Breakfast Club? Yes. With that dad. Yeah, and he was. win, 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 mm-hmm. right? And, yep. and he's actually this sensitive, sweet guy mm-hmm. who gets pressured into doing something stupid. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing these parallels. Uh, they're, they're here. That's for sure, loud and clear. His older brother, so Jared had an older brother named Sean. Now, Sean went before him and was a celebrated athlete at Huntington. So obviously there's pressure there for him to also be that way, especially to the coaches where they're like, oh yeah, you're Sean's brother. Another one. I feel bad for my boys in that regard because they very much, um, my youngest child has heard that over and over again from his, they're the same coaches, right? Yeah. Oh, you're his, you're Jacob's brother. You know, you're Jace's brother. Those it's there. It's a very real thing even today. Um, Now, luckily, he does seem to really enjoy sports, so we're not forcing that on him. But for Jared, unfortunately, his uncle Derek did move farther away from Huntington um, to Ohio. So their visits became more sparse. They only saw each other about four times a year or so. And at this point in time, Jared is in high school. and But he would still send his uncle some of his art for that constructive criticism. Okay. So they could, and his, when his uncle visited, he would show him some things that he had been working on. Yep. And get some constructive feedback from it. I like this relationship now. Yes. Now after football during the 1987, 1988 school year, Jared fell into a deep depression that no one knew about football season was over. So he had nothing to do after school since he didn't play basketball. He felt he wasn't in the shape um, that he usually would be because it's not yet track season. So that affected him mentally. The days are shorter. You know, the sun rose late in the morning and set early this time of year in Indiana. We're very familiar with we that. We are, here. and it gets cold. Mm-hmm. Now, the main reason for his depression, though, is something that does not come out to the world in this case until more than a decade later. But I am not going to make you wait that long. I'm just going to tell you right now. Trigger alert as well. Jared had been sexually molested by a peer that was older than him from the time that he was 12 years old. So sixth grade, it started in sixth grade and he told no one about it. Why would he? He would have probably been shamed at that point. Yes. The book never outright says this person's name, neither do court records to which I am aware of that I saw, but it does suggest that it was a friend who was 10 years older than Jared and that he first met this older youth Um, when this person was responsible for Jared in that church group at Union Church in Huntington. All right. Their meetings were weekly. Now, these at 12 years old were his first sexual encounters. And with it being, you know, male on male, this became a big struggle for Jared because it felt good. But at the same time, he was ashamed. He knew, he felt like what they were doing was wrong. And of course, it was. of course, he was being coerced to be told that he can't tell anybody about these things. All, all of those common things that we know about sexual molestation, right? But it's even more exaggerated by the family's strong religious faith that homosexuality is not accepted by God. So we have that that strong religious belief that's going to come into play a lot in this case, okay? 
By the age of 16, Jared felt so shameful for enjoying the the time that he now, now by 16, he's enjoying his time, his weekly meetings with this peer. Sure. He is no longer seeing it as um, molestation and wrongdoing that way, even though you and I both know it is. that is. He, but let's just point out again, and we've said this on a hundred other podcasts, right? When molestation doesn't always feel bad. Correct. Even to young children, yep. child sexual abuse does not. And he's still a child and mm-hmm. he is being sexual abuse, abused. Mm-hmm. And so you can understand, I can understand why he would be so confused at this point. Yes. And he is extremely conflicted. But by 16, he realizes that he is homosexual. All right. So he does identify mm-hmm. as a homosexual at yes. that point in time. Yes. But this adds a whole nother layer of shame to him because in his eyes, this is wrong. This isn't okay that sure. this is what I prefer sexually. And he's confused. He does try to cut the ties, okay, with this person, this peer. Whenever, Who's probably 26 to 28 years at, old at, at this, this point, point in, time. in time. He is, yep, yep. My understanding is that he is a decade older and... Every time that he had tried, of course, he was threatened with scandal by the older boy, right? Well, I'm going to tell everyone that you are a homosexual. Right. Okay. So he's not Which only- he wouldn't have because he would have been sending himself to prison, but Correct. that's beside the point. This young man was being basically mentally abused as well. And eventually Jared does get there and realize- Yeah, he's not going to say And turns shit. those tables and realizes- yeah, I don't blame oh, him. Okay. I yep. don't. Um, the other thing that he's ashamed about is not only his, you know, what, what he identifies sexually as, but also the fact that he was what he felt was obsessively masturbating. He would describe it as three to five times a day. Now this stuff does not come out until a decade later, guys. So just keep that in mind. I'm just plugging this information in here to help us all understand how the events take place. So he is describing... Is that an excessive amount for I, a teenage boy you know, to masturbate? I don't know. These are questions should, that should I... Should we ask some guys that we know? I have four teenage sons and I care not to know. Well, exactly. I, I, I have all girls and then the one teenage son mm-hmm. and I also don't want to know no, at all. Not any of my business. So the shame... And, and sometimes he would even engage in that activity on the same days that he was with his this peer that was molesting him, okay? So the the shame and the guilt that he felt coupled with the winter and him not having football season, having no physical outlet anymore was just really heavy on him. He, of course, could not speak to any of his family about this. And one day, there was a particularly strong sermon in Union Church regarding homosexuality and it was after and there was actual in the book there there is parts of this sermon it is aggressive it is a big problem that i have with organized religion sometimes it it was it was horrific okay it's basically saying if you are gay you are completely denounced from God and you're going to burn in, in hell for all eternity. And it's this horrific. boy sitting there internalizing it. Yes. Right. And after that sermon, he 
he begins planning his own suicide. Okay. I, w- I wondered when this was coming. Yep. He, so he had a plan. He did. And he, that's what causes us concern when people are talking about ending their own life is as soon as you get to the point where you have a plan, mm-hmm. you almost can't safety plan this away anymore. It requires a right. lot more help. Right. And no one at the, now keep in mind though, he is still the popular sure. Mr. Personality in you school. A, you have an appearance to uphold. Yes. No one knows. He had considered a gun. Nope, too much of a mess. He didn't want to put his parents through that. He considered pills, not guaranteed. He wasn't sure how many he would have to take to make sure it gets it gets done. Yeah, he really thought this out. He did. So so much so, Megan, he starts making a rope. He's gonna hang himself. Yes, that's what he decided that it was the least traumatic for his parents in terms of messiness and in terms of how he would be found. But also this just broke me. He was making the rope with yarn left over from sweaters that his mother had made him. Oh, good God. I know. And he kept it in a bag in his closet. And one day after school, when the black shroud of depression was just gripping him so tightly, he went home, he went into the garage, he put a, a old kitchen stool on a rafter, below a rafter, um, he recalled walking to the garage and seeing that his mom was making him pot roast, which was his favorite meal. And he was thinking in his head how he wouldn't get to enjoy it because he was walking to the garage to hang himself. He put the noose over around the rafter. He was stepping on the stool and going to put his um, head into the actual noose when all of a sudden his mom calls him because someone was on the phone for him. Remember those days when the phone's attached to the wall? Yep, and you're yelling. Yep. It was his girlfriend named Rose. Now, he, like you said, we have an image to uphold. Sure, so he dated girls. Yes, he absolutely did. This was part of his um, confliction, though, Megan, because he had this pretty little girl named Rose that adored him. And for all, I mean, really to him, he feels like he should be interested in her. She's a great girl. She's adorable. Any man would be lucky to have her as a girlfriend, but he's gay. Yeah. He couldn't make himself want to want her, be attracted to her. Of course not. And so she was, Rose was calling because she wanted Jared to take her to a party that Friday and was just calling to ask if he would pick her up. And she says, you know, or he says, yep, you know, I will. He inhaled his mother's pot roast and said, oh, pot, it smells like pot roast. That's my favorite. And his mom says, I know I made it for you. Because she loves him. He was this close. He was ready. To committing suicide while his mother was making him his favorite meal. And she had no idea. Yeah, I think sometimes that's a that's a divine intervention there or even a mother's intuition. Like, I wrote just that. To know. I wrote that right. Did in you? There. Really? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I and I agree, you know, completely. He walked into the garage. He took that noose down and put it back in the bag and then threw it in the dumpster. And it was after that attempt that he officially cut things off with the perpetrator, the peer that had been molesting him. Um, And of course, he did try to pull the whole, oh, I'm going to expose you. And he's like, listen, the fact of the matter is, no one's going to believe you. Because look at who I am and look at who you are. And they they will never believe you. And you're not going to tell them that you've been with me since I was 12 years old when you were in a you know, essentially 22. Oh, that's, you got to tell the truth, buddy. You tell yep. the whole truth For sure. Then. Yep. 
So he goes on living Mr. Popular High Life like nothing was wrong into the 88-89 school year. Almost a year after his attempted suicide, he overheard overheard his parents discussing his uncle Derek, who Jared had not seen in a while because was, of the distance. Was Derek gay? Yes. Yes. Derek yeah. Derek. I, is I gay. kind of made the assumption mm-hmm. and yeah. Well, and that's literally in my next sentence. What he overheard them talking about is that Derek had AIDS. Oh, this is right in the middle of the HIV AIDS epidemic. It absolutely is. Now, this is also how Jared learns that his uncle Derek is gay. So he did not know before. No, no. And he and it dawned on him and he's like, oh, my gosh, you know what? Uncle Derek always brought male friends to visits and to holidays. But Jared, being a kid, thought that was just because he had a long drive and he didn't want to drive alone. So he brought his friends. And kids don't think about sexual and or romantic relationships at that point in time. And especially not with their adult loved ones. No, not at all. Jared's parents really didn't want Derek over for Christmas that year. Um, As a matter of fact. Because he has cooties now, right? Yes. There is a germ panic happening. And this detail broke my fucking heart. And it will you guys too. I just know it. But they made Derek that Christmas eat off of plastic forks, paper plates, and cups because he wasn't allowed to eat off from the same plates because someone they didn't want their kids hugging him, anything. But Jared did not care. Or Jared, yeah, Jared did not care. He still hugged Derek. He still treated Derek as he would, even if he did not know. Now, Derek was shockingly thin. He did not look well. He had sores all over his body. He was clearly putting on a brave face, but he was suffering. This unraveled Jared's heart. Okay, first of all, he loved his Uncle Derek. And then he learns, not only do they share their love of art in common, but he can't talk to Derek about this, but he too is gay. And he learns that Derek is gay. And in his mind, being gay made him sick. It gave him AIDS. And and to Jared, look at how this makes it even more wrong, right? So A lot of people felt that way at the time. They did. They did. Yeah. These are not statements that I believe in No, we know that. I'm trying to. Well, yes. And I'm sitting here reconciling in my own brain too, as disgusting as it is that we think about them making him, making him eat off of paper plates and plastic silverware. No one was a hundred percent sure of how things were spread at that point in time. And they were terrified. They were, they were. And later that comes out in testimony from his mom as well. But We have a 17-year-old boy. He's ashamed of the fact that he is gay. He believes that this was caused by his molestation at a young age, which also infuriates him even more. He believes that God will no longer love and accept him for this. And now he learns that his most you know, favored, not prized, his most favored relative is not only gay, but has also contracted a deadly disease because of it. So Jared's, he's devastated when Uncle Derek left from that visit. Jared sobbed alone in his room, unable to talk to anybody. You don't think his parents didn't notice that he was upset or that he was the only one of them who was actually still showing physical affection to his uncle? They always, his dad always knew that Uncle Derek was his favorite. So I don't think that that was out of the norm. Mm -hmm. But they had no idea that their son was gay. Even after the trial, they have no idea. Wow. Yeah, it takes quite some time. 
Now I'm going to tell you about the victim of this story. But before I tell you, I'm going to tell you about the victim before I tell you about the third boy. Eric okay. Dash. I was just to say, aren't there three? There are. There are. We have only covered Johnny Velasquez and Jared Wall. But now I want to tell you about, after telling you about Jared, it's going to make sense to tell you about the victim, Eldon Tully Anson. Eldon Anson. All right. He was an older man in town. Very well known. Uh, he was born November 15th, 1931 in Huntington County, Indiana. He was a native. So at this point in time, in uh, he was 57 years old. He'd been divorced for six years and he had had uh, three adult daughters. Eldon had a lot of rumors surrounding him, unfortunately. Rumors like how he lured young men to his home and did things to them. Uh-oh. Rumors that he was a drug dealer with a lot of guns and that he only wanted young gay men to do his drug running for him. What the town did not know, but would find out shamefully later, is that the uh, the DA and the FBI actually did an investigation on Eldon and found nothing of the sort to uh, make those rumors true. Small town rumors. People mm. don't understand somebody who might be quiet, who might be different, and so they make facts up in their own head. They did. And Eldon was different for Huntington because he had a lot of working dealings in different countries even. So he was much more worldly than most people in this small town. He knew of other cultures. He brought some of that back with him. He even wore some of that on his clothes and in his personality that a small town like Huntington wouldn't understand at the time. So the local police did know of this investigation as well that had taken place from the DA and from the FBI. And they were aware that nothing uh, nefarious came of this investigation. But one of the boy's friends in high school had a father who worked as a dispatcher at the police station. And apparently this boy's dad, the, the boy's name is Clay Carter, Apparently his dad just spoke openly about his work life, whatever, because Clay had overheard his dad saying all these things that Eldon Anson was supposedly doing out of his house. Now, I imagine Clay Carter's dad was probably just telling his wife about the investigation when it was happening, about what what the FBI and what the DA were investigating, right? As people do. Yep. Small towns especially. Yep, yep, yep. Little pillow talk, pillow talk. Sure. But Clay is hearing these things, not understanding his dad's role as a dispatcher or anything like that. And he's taking it as fact. And what he's doing is he's going back and he's telling Jared Wall all about this stuff that's going on in Eldon Anson's home. And during Christmas break, after his uncle had left, Jared was cleaning up from um, the church group that I told you about that he was a part of with Clay when all of a sudden Jared tells Clay, something needs to be done about Eldon Anson. He literally told Clay, maybe if people like Eldon Anson disappeared from this earth, we wouldn't have AIDS. Oh, God. I have goosebumps. Mm-hmm. My uncle is going to die because of Anson or someone like him. Jared and Clay decided that they would, would go to the cops with their concern. All right. So Clay Carter went to one of his father's friends at the police station, Kent Farthing, and told him, 
that he, and, and when he tells, you know, Clay is like, listen, this is what's going on at the Anson house. Can you look into this? And Kent is like, you know what? Yes, I, uh, we will look into it because Kent cannot tell this 17 year old boy that the DEA, the FBI, they had already investigated him for these rumors and they found no evidence. But that is not for Clay Farthing to tell a 17-year-old high school student. He just says, thank you, son, for the concern. I think that would still happen today. I do too. If he had been able to tell him, though, Megan, I firmly believe that Eldon Anson would probably still be alive. Sure. Because now Clay is just like, well, I told the police and nothing's happening. They're not going to do anything about it. So I'm going to vigilante this <sighs> shit. Yes. That is exactly where Jared Wall's mind space was at at this time. Let's talk about John. So Johnny V and Jared, they had actually recently became friends, which was unlikely because Jared was popular and a jock. Johnny wasn't a jock. Okay? Oh, he wasn't? Johnny was not a jock. He was just feared because of hip, his rumors with a gang A hip-hop gang rapper dancer yes. extraordinaire. Yes. Not a jock. Okay. So, in and as a matter of fact, they mostly hung out and talked after school, not even during school, because they really were so unlikely to be friends. Yeah, but do you know what I like about this? And I, I'm going to say something likable about Jared here. Being this popular, well-liked kid, he's literally nice to everybody. Yeah. And so he has friends in all of these different cliques. And high school was clicky yeah. in the late 80s. Oh, you have your jocks and you have your arty people yep. and you have your your uh, mathletes. And so this is the you kid have, that's good at everything. You have teachers bullying children because well, bullying's not even a thing yet. No. It, it wasn't it, recognized as a problem yeah. yet. Yeah. Suck it up, man. Yep. Boys will be boys. Yep. Yeah. All that and shit. And girls are still mean. And that's yeah. just about it. For sure. <laughs> yep. So at this point in time, I'm going to tell you about the third boy in this case, Eric Ash. Eric did not have the same childhood that Johnny V and Jared had with involved loving parents. Okay. Seemed to be middle to upper, upper middle class yes. too. Yes. Yep. That's not where Eric came from. Eric's early years were what we would consider normal. He grew up in Indianapolis, but then his parents got divorced. And when his parents got divorced, this wrecked his life, essentially. It, it set off a path. Part of its economic circumstances and the other other part is just that his mother was absolutely um, unfit to be a mom which he later makes the state that statement himself she was into drugs and oh. us courts didn't necessarily like to place children with fathers at that point in time so moms usually got custody right and his mom and his father moved across the country so and didn't take him with or no, try nope and he has a little brother named leaf that is a couple of year leaf, yeah, L E I F. Uh, yes, I think I've always pronounced that leaf. It's it is leaf. That's so cool. It was I, an I audio book that I listened to. I think this. it's yeah. like um, uh, almost Viking Norse. It's kind of Norse. Yeah, it's Norse. Yeah. So they here. This single mom is with these two young children. She often worked two jobs. Um, the problem is she often also brought home many different men. Sometimes she didn't come home at night at all. She spent most of their money on drugs. And so for two years after his parents' divorce, Eric was left to care for his younger brother, Leaf, and he, spent, he felt responsible for him. Um, he would clean up the house. Leaf liked to cook. 
So he would cook what he knew that the little you know, guy would cook. And then at this point in time, when their parents are divorced, Leaf is ten, Eric is twelve. Okay, they're doing the best. And they're that raising they can. themselves. Yes, but they are alone all the time. Now, Eric did have an art, an aunt, Charlene, which is his mother's sister. She would come and check up on them. She'd make sure that they were okay. She had young kids of her own at home, so she didn't offer to have them live with her, but she would go to bring them back to her house, make sure they had a good meal and that they were clean and then take them back home. Um, Leaf and Eric were two peas in a pod. Now, obviously without parental supervision, they skipped school a lot, you know, there was priorities, survival or fun. There was a situation um, one one time when one of the men that her that his mother brought home, um, they had the TV up too loud and it was a school night. So Leaf came out and asked them to turn it down. The man and and his mom were really really drunk, high on cocaine, and the guy got rough with Leaf. So Eric intervened. He, he did smash Eric's head against a wall. His mother just sat there staring, did nothing. So Eric failed to protect. Yep. That's what we call that in the industry. Eric put Leaf to bed that night and then left the house with nothing but a small um, jacket on. He did not grab his winter coat. How many years is this? Um, the, oh, this is in the middle of winter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In Indianapolis. Yeah. So snow, cold. Mm-hmm. Very cold. As a matter of fact, he looked at the thermometer on the grocery store and it said 10 below. So he entered a pizza place. That was happened to be um, about to close for the night. And, and they, they're always warm and they smell good. They do. And the guy's like, hey, bud, you know, we're getting ready to close. And he could tell that he was a little troubled with something in that, you know, in that moment. He took pity on him, gave him two pieces of pizza and, you know, told him, go home and straighten things out at home. It'll be okay. You know, so when he's walking home, he looked on the bank um, temperature thing. And at this point, it says 12 below. So he climbed into bed with Leaf. After falling asleep, the man, for absolutely no reason, just starts pounding on their bedroom door, beat a hole in the door, told them, you better not come out or I'm going to kill you. So these are the type I give you this short story because this is the type of thing that he was experiencing at home. And this is a turning point for Eric. He gave up on his mother that night and he gave up on himself. There were times where there was no food to cook, so Eric would shoplift. But unfortunately, he wasn't that good at it and he got caught. (laughs) So enter now. As is often the case with our young shoplifters. Yep. So enter now the juvenile record. Okay. He ends up having three brushes with the law during the two-year period that he was on his own. One was for shoplifting, another for burglar, burglary. I always have a hard time with that word. <laughs> and battery. It's awkward. Which the battery one, he didn't know what battery, he didn't know what that meant because he thought that that meant he would have to physically like punch someone or kick someone or something like that. Well, he's that. not wrong in terms of what the official definition is, but different states call them different things. Mm-hmm. What happened to him was that it was actually the school bus driver that filed the charge. On that day, he had a radio that he was told to give to her. And instead of giving it to her, he handed it out the window to a friend instead. And on that same ride, he asked to get off at the nearest stop sign that was in front of his apartment complex. She told him no, she couldn't because that was not a designated designated stop. So he grabbed there at a stop sign, okay, and he wants off. So he grabs the mechanical arm to open the door himself. All right. 
Now, the driver had already had a hand on the shaft of the mechanical arm. Yep. And so when he pulled on it, she injured herself and she filed the battery charge against him. Okay. That is technically Mm -hmm. battery because it's the physical unwanted touching and well, he and she were where Eric was confused is he never physically touched her, but she injured herself. They were touching the same mechanism. Correct. And, and I can see where he wouldn't understand it, but that's right. the same today. So if you're trying to get your, um, in a domestic situation, I've seen it recently, a guy is trying to get a cell phone away or a purse to mm-hmm. grab it away from her because you're making physical contact with something attached to their body or something they're using that's where the battery piece comes yeah. in but I can totally understand why as a juvenile he wouldn't understand that yeah. because I know a lot of adults that wouldn't yeah yeah absolutely so he he was very confused because he was just trying to get off the damn bus you know essentially um now for the burglary he did enter an open window with a buddy helped himself to two concert tickets oh shit all yeah, right that's a Classic uh, home invasion, B&E, burglary, whatever you want to call it. And he then sold the tickets to two other friends. And when those friends went to the concert, (laughs) they were arrested. Fuck yeah, that's what happened. And Did those friends know? They're like, wait, why am I being arrested? They didn't know they were stolen. I bought these from my buddy. Mm -hmm. They didn't know they were stolen. So of course they're like, um, we got these from Eric. And then whatever his other buddies from him. Yep. So now he is sent to a Jesuit school for boys, a reform school. And he's still very young. He's 13, 14 at this point in time. Leaf stayed with his mom, but his father returns from Arizona to Indianapolis. And after eight months at the Jesuit reform school, which I will say Eric did wonderful at this school, it really turned his life around. He moved in with his father and his stepmother and entered his high school career in in Indianapolis and he is thriving. He got good grades. He was a absolute football star. He's doing wonderful. So he is an athlete also. He is. Yes. So the two are probably friends because they know each other from the football team. You mean Eric and Jared? Yes. Eventually we get there. Okay. But right now he's still in Indianapolis. He's not in Huntington. Gotcha. So this is like maybe when he's a freshman, sophomore. Yep. His freshman, freshman, sophomore and junior year. He is in Indianapolis. He's thriving, living with his dad and stepmom. His dad and him don't get along wonderfully, but it's, he lives in a nice house. He's stable and he's thriving. And then his dad announces in his junior year oh no, that they are moving to Huntington, Indiana because his father got a job at a golf course. And this is early 1988. So he got to finish his junior year in Indianapolis and then his senior year, he oh, will have to readjust. So hard. Uh-huh. A hundred miles away to attend North Huntington High School. And Eric, I mean, he is so devastated. He was, a, like I said, he was a football star. Scar, scar. He was a football, football star. But most importantly, he had a girlfriend. And her name was Kelly. And she was the love of his life. Kelly and her family knew of his eight months in reform school and accepted him anyway. Kelly was a good girl and she and Eric were a great couple and Kelly's parents really liked Eric. As a matter of fact, they offered to have Eric live with them his senior year to finish out um, because he was such a good kid. Right. But Eric's father wanted all of them together as a family and refused. Had he made a different decision, we wouldn't be here. 
Eric's entire life would have ended up differently. Huntington was a lot smaller, a lot smaller than Indianapolis, right? He knew he needed to get on the football team. If, if he was going to get on the football team his senior year, he had to make a good impression with the starters. So one of the coach's sons, um, he had learned real quick, had the starting position that Weird. Eric wanted. Strange. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that summer, he did go to the weight room with the rest of the football team. He rode his bike three miles each way every morning to go lift with the football team because, you know, his father was too busy to give him a ride, of course. He wrote the coaches that summer outlining his skills that he had at Southport. He's playing for a much bigger school. You know, this kid is probably talent wise. fantastic. Oh, he absolutely was. Yes. Yes. And in that's why he wrote the coaches and was like, I'm coming from Southport. This is what I have accomplished there. You know, I'd love to get, get a chance, which is how he then learns that one of the coaches son has his the position, the, that the he starting plays. spot that he plays. Yep. But he makes friends smartly with the starting quarterback. And this kid's name is Matt Pike. And the Pikes become a very important part of Eric's life. But Matt and Eric became genuine good friends. Um, Eric also hit it off with other kids on the team, but also Matt's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Pike, really like Eric and could really see what a good kid he is. Um, He also met the county prosecutor, John Brenham's twin daughters, Amy and Joey, because the county prosecutor's house, which Megan, you have been in that position before. I have. This house was, they had a swim, a swimming pool. They had twin daughters that were going into their senior year. Their house was the hangout house. Of course. You know, so after football practice, after weightlifting, all of them would all go over to Amy and Joey's uh, pool. Okay. Presumably because the parents didn't have to worry. They're hanging out at the prosecutor's house. Right. Yep. Yes. Yep, I've, I've, I've been having, there with my older girls. Having a good time. Um, Amy and Joy, Joey are very kind girls. They're the type of girls that were described as if they saw an elderly person eating alone at a restaurant, they would go and sit and eat with them and chat with them. That's how my girls are. Yeah. I love these girls already. Mm-hmm. During, good job, Amy and Joey. And they are still very good people today, just so you know. But during the first scrimmage, the newspaper called... Eric, the most promising player to come to Huntington in years. But the coach's son still had that starting spot over him. What was he, by the way? I'm assuming a receiver of some kind. Um, I believe running back as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, But early on in the year, the coach's son broke his collarbone, giving Eric a chance to show Huntington what he could do. And he did. He excelled. He was the football star that season. He got good grades um, that he had plans to attend college next year. He wanted to move back to Indianapolis so that he could be with Kelly. He is still with Kelly after football season. Um, he discovered for his first friend at Huntington, uh, Matt Pike enjoyed rap music like his friends in Indianapolis did. Oh, so yeah, we have another urban kid. Yes, yeah, exactly. So he, he listens to some interesting music yep. compared to the other Instead kids. Instead of the country twang, yeah, right? Yeah. He's listening to, to rap. So Matt and Eric are spending a lot of time together bonding over the controversial lyrics of the time. Matt introduced Eric to Brandon Lissanikia because he watched, remember, Brandon is the one that watched the movie Colors with Johnny V. Yes. And they 
Um, so then Brandon introduces Eric to Johnny V because they all have the same similar taste in urban hip hop music and, and rap. All right. So Brandon ends up kind of pulling away from the friend group because he got himself a girlfriend. But the reason I'm telling you this is because this is a very important part. Brandon kind of pulls away from the group because he's spending all the time with his girlfriend, who he does later go on to marry, by the way. Oh, well, it was time well spent. Mm -hmm. I think you and I know he's figuring out that the vagina is way more fun than sitting around listening to rap music with his friends. Some boys figure that out earlier than others. Yes. And so Johnny V and and Eric. (laughs) Johnny V's less interested in the V Mm -hmm. than his friends. Than Brandon is. (laughs) Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Johnny is the V. He is looking for the V. Yeah. So Johnny and Eric are now hanging out a lot because Brandon's kind of fallen off the face of the earth with this girlfriend. And they're just hanging out, listening to music, doing that sort of that sort of stuff. And they figure they kind of bond over the fact that like Eric feels like he's kind of big city because he's from Indianapolis and Johnny because he was from right outside the Cleveland area. So they do bond over those sorts of things, right? Also, neither one of them are Huntington natives. They are, they moved during high school. So that helps them bond. Now, one day, Johnny's mother gave Eric a ride home from school. This is something that she did a lot because she felt like Eric was a good influence on Johnny you know, he gets really good grades. He's intelligent. He is an athlete. He's well-liked in school. Now that we know how all the boys know one another, keep in mind that I haven't really told you how Jared and Eric know each other. Okay. That's because they only know each other through Johnny V. Jared Wall and Eric, because Jared, Jared did play um, running back. All right. Right. They were on the same football team, but they did not hang out. They weren't like buddies. Okay. But Johnny V didn't play football. Johnny V did not play football. So how is he friends? But at this point in time, Johnny V and Jared are friends from Brandon. Oh, I keep forgetting about Brandon. Brandon. Mm -hmm. Brandon who left for the V. Brandon who leaves for the V connects all of these kids essentially. But Jared and Eric, Jared Wall and Eric Esch aren't really friends at this point in time. They just have mutual friends. Johnny V did not know that sometimes Eric would get jealous when he spent a lot of time with Jared. You know, Eric had his friend group that shared interests and he had this stable home life for the first time in his life. He's trying to, this is his senior year, he's trying to make friends. You know, he's trying to fit in somewhere. And so he would be put off when Johnny V would go and hang out with Jared and not him. So I'm going to take you to February 3rd, 1989. So this is there in in February of their senior year. When Johnny V's mom is taking the boys home, that is Eric, Esh, and Johnny, home from school. And Johnny says, hey mom, can I hang out with Jared tonight? Eric is sitting right there. It's a Friday night. This hurts him. Sure. Johnny's mom says, you know what? I'm sorry, but I need you to stay home tonight and babysit your sisters. So Johnny gets cusses a little bit. His mom scolds him for cussing. <laughs> 17, 18-year-old boys. Uh-huh. And Eric changes his entire life with one statement. And he says, hey, Johnny, how about I come over and hang out with you 
while you babysit your sisters. We can lift weights. We can watch TV and stuff. Listen to music. Johnny's mom's like, Eric, that would be so nice. So it's set. Eric's going to come stay overnight with Johnny that night, having absolutely zero idea that what Johnny V was really up to and why he really wanted to hang out with Jared Wall that Friday night instead of Eric, what he had planned is that by this time, Jared Wall had been talking since Christmas break about needing to do something about Eldon Anson. Johnny V and Jared had decided that they were going to break into Anson's house and steal the guns that he used to deal drugs. So now that he can't go, in that moment in that car, when Eric says, I'll come over I'll and, come hang, over out and hang out with you, because he's jealous of how much Johnny's been hanging out with Jared, in that moment, Johnny's thinking, you know what? We can still make this happen because I can talk Eric into going for me. And then I'll be able to live through the excitement through Eric and through Jared. Ugh. So it's decided. Johnny V tells Jared that Eric will accompany him that night to Eldon Anson's house. And he's fine with it? Eric is eager to please Johnny, so he does not argue. Because he's told, Megan, Jared is, you and Jared are going to go break into Eldon Anson's house and steal his guns. And he has a past criminal history and what, yeah. He's he's just wants to please. He doesn't, he at this point feels like he's losing Johnny as a friend because he's been spending so much time with Jared. This case is the poster case for peer pressure Mm -hmm. and the poor decision making that happens when we're dealing with kids who don't have mature developed brains and are acting on impulse. Yes. Impulse control is an issue with all teenagers, but when you have one who's been traumatized yep. to some extent as well. I'm not oh. sure what Johnny V's excuse is because I haven't heard a ton of trauma in his past, to nope. be honest with you. you the knew. other two, and you yes. Won't. The yeah, other two, there's, yes. There's not any. Other than his influence of watching these gang movies and listening to rap music according to the courts. He wants to be a badass. He does. We will get to it, honey. And you're going to be like, oh my God, <laughs> Okay, are you serious? Whoops, I just hit my microphone again. Well, you still have all your teeth, so. Oh, thankfully. So Johnny gives the boys two jackets to wear that night. They all meet at Johnny V's house because his parents are gone. He's babysitting his sisters. So he gives them two dark jackets to wear. One of which was Johnny's mother, mother's huh? jacket. Yes, like. I just like, God dang it. Don't use my jacket. Now we're wearing women's clothing. <laughs> to go, right. To go do crimes. <laughs> so Jared was armed with his father's 22 caliber revolver in the front of his pat, pants and a hatchet. You know, he secured a hatchet in his pocket, pants, whatever. But this hatchet was actually stolen earlier that week from Jared or by Jared and Johnny V from the local Kmart. And they stole it. Because they thought that they may need to use it to break into the gun safes. Okay, because remember, Eldon Anson has all these guns because he's he's a drug runner, right? So Johnny claims that he handed Eric a small knife, but this is later disputed. Eric did not have any weapons on him um, at all. So Jared Wall and Eric Esch set out for Anson's, Anson's, Eldon Anson's country home without Johnny V because he absolutely did have to stay and babysit his sisters. Eldon Anson's home was large and it was set outside of town in the country about a mile away from the Little Wabash River that ran through the town. 
Eldon had a lot of friends in town, and his job took him all over the world, so he was more worldly than most in Huntington, like I had said. He liked to buy classic cars from other areas in the U.S. and bring them back and restore them and then resell them. So this is how some of the first rumors of drugs came about um, regarding Anson, because they thought that he was using the cars uh, to run drugs. They watch too many movies. Uh-huh. There was also a ton of rumors surrounding him that he has all male parties, which were never really corroborated because they either never never happened or no one in the town wanted to admit that they were there. So it just seemed to be this mystery surrounding him. As Jared pulls into the driveway, he parks right next to Eldon Anson's car. Anson lives far enough off the road in a winding drive with a winding driveway so no one can see any vehicles in the driveway from the road. Eric thinks that the plan is just to break in and steal the guns and if Anson is home they're just going to leave. Jared Wall tells him to keep calm and quiet when they realize that Anson is in fact home. It's 9:45 at night, just so you know. So old, old people, yeah. he wasn't too old at the time. He's in his he's 50s. 57. Yeah, I know. But no, remember no, that's what we said old. earlier. You're in bed at 10 o'clock. Yeah. Yep. And so Jared knocks on the door and Eric is not comfortable with any of this because he thought the plan was to leave if they found out that Anson was home. And of course, Jared's just knock it off. I've got this. Okay. So Eldon answers the door and Jared tells him that they're there because they want to buy one of his cars. Anson points out that it's 940 at night, and but Jared is persis- persistent. So Anson's like, you know what? All right, I'm going to go back and put a coat on. It's February in northern Indiana. It's fucking cold. And he has to grab all of his sets of keys for all of these cars that he has, you know, possibly for sale. So he puts this heavy coat on. He pulls the hood up, and he had about six cars for sale to show the boys. Now, at first, he shows them what he's currently working on for restoring some of the classic cars in his garage before um, Jared's kind of acting impatient and was like, "Okay, I really just want to see the cars that are for sale. And so he's like, well, all right, you know, they're out in the in the yard, essentially. So Jared's like, what about that maroon and white cutlass? You know, what's the cost of that? So. Anson walks closer to one of the yard lights to look for on his large ring of keys to look for the key. As he walks back to the car with the key in hand to unlock it, he's got his back to Jared to unlock the car. And this is where I'm going to give you a trigger alert for some gruesome details. Jared saw his opportunity at this point in time because Eldon's back is to him. He pulls out the 22 revolver and he fires one shot into the back of Eldon Anson's head. Eric had not been looking at Jared at this point in time. He was just looking around thinking that the dude's going to unlock this car. So when the shot fired, it startled him and it snaps him back and he realizes like he's trying to figure out what the fuck just happened. He didn't actually see him shoot him. He heard it and it rang out in the night, of course. But unfortunately, I don't even know if I should say unfortunately or fortunately at this point in time. But the fact of the matter is the gun and the bullets were old. So the shot, oh no, yeah, the shot did not actually penetrate his skull. Fuck. So Eldon Anson is left dazed and on his knees, saying, "What's going on? Are you boys okay?" He thought a gunshot came from somewhere, somewhere. Mm-hmm. and he's worried about these boys. Oh, I have goosebumps again. I know. He falls to the ground. Now Eric knew 
all of a sudden what is happening and what and what being a witness is from reform school. So he busts ass back to Jared's car. He, he wants to get- He runs off? Yeah, he wants to get out of there. He gets in Jared's car to drive away only to realize that it's a stick shift and he has no idea how to drive a freaking stick shift. I've been there, sweetie. I, I would have figured it out real quick. Yeah, I think. I think so too. So he runs back to Jared. No, run away. Not knowing what to do. And, and Jared asks Eric, what do you want to do? Eric says, I want to get the hell out of here. Jared walks to Anson, who is now fully on the ground on his back, twisting and they can see his breath you know in the cold night air trigger alert again to more gruesome details jared empties the gun into eldon anson's head firing six shots total so he fired five more shots after the first one anson was still alive and was in the fetal position bleeding profusely eric runs again to jared's car frantic remembering again that it's a stick and that he can't. He's still just hit, trying to yeah, get his, out of here. His brain isn't processing correctly because he's repeating himself. He runs to the car after watching him get shot that many times and then realizes I still can't go anywhere. It's still a fucking stick and I still don't know how to drive it. Jared calls to, to him. So they he goes back down to him. Jared grabs Eric's coat sleeve and, and tells him um, he's not dead. He knows who I am. I've got to kill him. Eric's mind is racing. He is terrified. And at this point in time, he is really terrified at how calm Jared is and how black his eyes are. So at this point in time, Eldon Anson was up on one knee, and I'm going to give you a trigger alert again. And then he stood bracing himself against the car, that he, the same car he was trying to unlock earlier. The reason that the, the gun didn't work is because the gunpowder was old, so it didn't give enough force for the bullets to penetrate. But also, he was wearing this thick hoodie. Right. Um, and then he had a thick amount of hair as well. So these wounds are bleeding profusely, of course, but technically they're superficial. They're not impairing. The only they're not th penetrating the skull. They're not. And so I've, they're throwing off his cognition and his balance at this point in time, but they're not, it's not killing him. Okay. As Eldon Anson was half standing, half leaning on the, in, on the car and blood is pouring onto his face and his eyes. Jared takes uh, his stolen Kmart hatchet and big trigger alert. Now, Anson can see the hatchet because he raises his hands in an attempt to block the blow that was coming down on top of his head. The hatchet severed three of his fingers on his right hand before it struck his skull. There was a bloody hand smear found by police later that went from the driver's side door handle where he had stood himself up to the tail light where he had fallen for the last time. Jared struck him when he was on the ground four more times. The last time it went so deep that he couldn't get the hatchet out. So he took Eric's coat, which was actually Johnny V's mother's coat. But Jared knew that Johnny liked that one less. So that's why he demanded Eric give him that coat. And Jared demanded to Eric that he wipe his boots off that he had gotten blood on. And Eric did comply. Sure. He is terrified at this yeah. point in time. This boy is still holding a hatchet, and he had watched him just chop this man's skull repeatedly. And shoot him five times because yes. he didn't see the first shot. Yep. And so Jared then took the coat. He threw it over the back of Eldon Anson's head and the hatchet that is still in his head, placing a foot on Eldon's neck and grabbing the, hat the hatchet handle with the coat still covering it. He used his 
his strength from being an, an, an athlete to dislodge the hatchet from Eldon Anson's head. Mm. Jared wrapped the hatchet up in the jean jacket and then asked Eric what he wanted to do now. Eric's like, I still just want to get I the hell leave. out of here. Keep in mind that Eric had nothing to do with the physical murder of Eldon Anson. And Jared said, listen, while we're here, we might as well steal some guns. So let's go inside and get them. Now, Eric is at this point in time, not about to disagree with Jared, right? Think of what he just saw. So they enter Anson's home because they wanted to finish what they were, what they came for. They found no guns. They found no drugs. The only thing that they did find was actually sex toys in his nightstand, most of which the teenage boys could not figure out what they would have been used for. (laughs) So this is the closest thing that they came to even trying to um, confirm any of the rumors that were surrounding him. If everybody that had a sex toy in their home was a child molester or... uh, We would all be screwed, people. Come on. Most people would be. Yes. Give me a break. Jared did steal a Walkman off the table as a souvenir for Johnny V because he wanted, uh, he knew that Johnny had wanted to come so bad but couldn't because he was babysitting his sisters. So he took that Walkman for Johnny. How considerate. Mm -hmm. Jared is also making the realization that Clay Carter had clearly stretched the truth of Eldon Anson's uh, antics in town. Oh, good. Yeah, because I'm glad this is processing at this point. It was. He's realizing that clearly Eldon Anson was not the drug lord, gun running sex mongler that his friend had made him out to be. So the two head back to Johnny V's house because that's where Eric was supposed to be spending the night, right? So they stop off to throw the bloody jacket in a dumpster on the way. And then the hatchet went into the Wabash River just a quarter of a mile away from Johnny V's house off from a small bridge. Jared told Eric that it's no big deal what they did. He's like, what? You've you not seen a guy whacked before? Eric's like, no, no I have not. He's like, ah, it's no big deal. I saw, I saw a guy get uh, wasted in Fort Wayne. It's no big deal. We don't know. I don't know if Jared and, and really. When, and when did Jared become so violent? Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't the Jared that you told me about earlier. Not at all. This isn't the Jared that the whole town knew at all we don't know if that's true or not or if he was just trying to be tough in front of eric at that point in time I'm sure he is it, but it is scary how much he's detached at this point from the sweet kid that we heard about earlier that detachment comes up later in an appeal yeah okay he most certainly was very very I see detached. It coming i'm also yeah. sitting here in my head saying things like which i'm sure you're gonna bring up later so johnny is a conspiracy to commit even though he wasn't there and our little eric is an accessory after the fact even though he didn't commit murder <laughs> so yeah. this is with all the things going through my head. right of course oh don't worry we'll get to the legalities it's your favorite part eric not necessarily my favorite but <laughs> something i know a little bit about yeah just a little Eric um, did silently disagree with Jared and knew that this was a big deal, um, especially because he had been in trouble for much less things before. Sure. You know? So Jared drops so Jared drops Eric off to Johnny V's house and then he goes home himself. Jared goes to his own home. Now Johnny V wanted all the details. Eric was sick to his stomach, terrified, mm-hmm. like literally got sick. Oh, well, I would have thrown up at the scene. Oh, I know. Me too. And he did give him all the details. He told him everything. So Johnny V tells Eric not to worry. If it ever comes out who did it, he'll take the rap for him. Oh, oh. my God. Uh-huh. Johnny V. I'll, I'll tell everybody I did it. 
So this goes to show how naive these kids were about the kind of trouble that murder charges really get you. Um, It's not like in the movies, kids. Jared went home and it had hit him what he'd done. Uh, He struggled. He washed his hands over and over and over like he couldn't get them clean. Yeah, you can't because you got blood on your hands, man. Um, And that's not superficial blood, honey. That goes to your core. Yep, yep. When he went to bed, he his thoughts were overwrought with um, the peer who had molested him all those years. Uh, the shame and guilt that followed from the pleasure that he derived from that. He convinced himself that he had redeemed himself in front of God that night because he had eliminated a sinner who was the embodiment of what had been done to him since the sixth grade. So for those moments, he felt justified in what he did and like he could maybe be allowed back into the kingdom of heaven because he had eradicated a sinner. This poor young mind and what he's mm-hmm. been convinced or has convinced himself is yep. uh, redemption. It's sad. It's extremely sad. I'm going to introduce a person named John Bruce. Or it's Burse. I'm sorry, Burse. John was renting a room from Eldon Anson in his basement. Oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. Did anybody know this prior? No, no. Oh, hell. He, he had his own outside entrance. Now, he actually wasn't home at the time of this um, attack, but he arrived home that night around midnight from a party. He saw Anson laying on the ground, and at first he actually mistook it for a pile of garbage, so he actually walked by it at oh, first. I, I'm not situationally aware. I would do the same Mm-mm. thing. No, and it's dark. I mean, yeah. it's midnight. Well, then he realizes, man, that is a big pile of garbage. Like, what the hell is going on? And he sees Anson's boots and then realizes what the hell he's looking at. Weirdly, the his first call is to his brother-in-law, who's a vi- volunteer firefighter over in a close village in Roanoke. Okay. And his brother's like, dude, calm down. And call the police. And he did. He was like, you got to calm down because he's just, the guy is dead. My landlord is dead. He's freaking out about seeing a dead body, essentially. You know, I don't get as judgy about those things when people have that type of reaction, maybe calling somebody else, especially if they're obviously dead. If they're in need of assistance, then it seems like your brain would go right to calling 911. But I think he went into panic mode, like what to do. What to do with this dead body. I'm really glad you're saying that. I'm not going to judge him that much on it. So the brother-in-law is like, okay, I'm going to come for you, but call 911 right now. So he does. He's just like screaming into the phone. I've got a dead. There's a dead guy here. I've got a dead guy in the even the dispatcher is like, okay, let's calm down. Where are you at? You know, so the Huntington County um, police sergeant Rod Jackson was the first to arrive and he noticed the frost that had formed on Eldon Anson's uh, brows and body. However, as he's looking him over, he realizes his lips are twitching. And so he bends his ear down very, very close to Eldon's mouth. And he can hear soft wisps of warm air coming from his mouth and nose. So he runs to his patrol car and tells dispatch to send an ambulance because Eldon Anson is not dead. Son of a bitch. And that's how we're going to end episode one. Of course you are. With goosebumps <laughs> right up With my goose- neck too, I know. girlfriend. I know. Yeah. You gave me you gave me all kinds of feelings right now. It's intense. And because I want to get on with part two for you, because we're going to record it I think next, I'm going to need a drink for the next part. I will give, we do need okay. a drink for the next okay. part. Um, if you're a Patreon, jump right over to episode two because you get it right away. And grab a drink with us. Yes. Uh, yes. Have, have a beer or something with me. Drink with us. Are you going to fucking bathe me? I am. I'm okay. going to give you the cutest 
little, it's a little brain bath because I want to get to part two. Okay. But it was sent by. I even like the little ones as long as they're satisfying. Oh yes. Don't we all? (laughs) It's not always the size that matters as long as everyone has a good time. We're talking about the height of people, right? I'm talking about the length of the brain baths. What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) so if you guys write us we will write you back by the way a lot of our listeners can attest to this yeah we're the real thing we don't hire anybody because we want to do that shit ourselves for sure that is the most fun it is so they they wrote and said i gotta tell you something about the raccoon penis bone oh no it's called a baculum fun fact haha so my best friend is also from the sticks like me he used to have one in his hat all the time Bleached and cleaned, of course. And when we'd be in big city bars, broads would come up to him and ask him what it is. Oh, no. (laughs) This is the best day, Megan. He'd tell them, it's a whistle. So we'd sit there while they'd be trying to blow it, pun intended. Oh, my God. And getting frustrated that they couldn't make it whistle. It was a fun joke, and we'd always play play it on the city folk. Maybe a little mean-spirited, but hilarious nonetheless. Oh, I yeah. am dead. Oh, yeah. I'm dead. That is so funny and awful and something that my friends would also probably do. Absolutely. I could 100% see so many people that I know do this and just wear one of them around. You had made comment about the raccoon penis bones that were sent to us. I did. I can see how you can trick someone into thinking that you could whistle through that that end. That uh, Yeah, here, let me grab them. So they have this curve to them. They do. And I wonder if he had anything hollowed out in either. But let's, let's be honest. I mean, we have seen some phalluses in our sure. lives. And we are also farm girls mm-hmm. and country girls. And I can tell you that if somebody just sent these to me without some context... I would not think that these were raccoon penis bones. No, I only knew it was penal in nature, just given the context of like, hey, I have something for your kangaroo sack. Yeah. Right? So I figured that being as long as they are. I'm looking at these and I'm thinking, you know, will you do all of us a favor and put a picture of one of these on so that people can uh, associate the the brain bath with this. And see how maybe you could trick someone, right, into blowing into that (laughs) to try to make a noise. Can you just think how both of us can be, for smart girls, so blonde sometimes that if we would never have had a raccoon penis joke to begin with, somebody would have sent this to us and said, hey, check out these cool bone whistles. And we would have sat here blowing it on these (laughs) things on a whistle. (laughs) For sure. And be like, what's the trick here i can't get it to make noise <laughs> yeah some of yep. them are harder to handle than others so actually it's called what a baculum i did love that fun fact a actually baculum. yes a baculum thank you so much super appreciate uh knowing that knowledge and i love that there's somebody out there just wearing one of these in a hat and getting drunk girls at a bar to try to whistle on it so that's perfect All right, you guys. Well, thanks for hanging out with us today. If you have case suggestions, feel free to um, send them to us. You can actually get on our website, crimecuriouspodcast.com. You can email us from there. It comes right to us with case suggestions or your own brain baths. There's pictures of us on there. And uh, very soon, merch. So leave some some reviews too. 
Yeah. Reviews really help us be pushed into other people's algorithms so that they can listen to listen to a Crime Curious podcast as well. That would be fantastic if you could do that. Also, interacting with us on social media does the same thing. So we appreciate all your comments and uh, and your time spent chatting with us. So, all right, you guys, until next time, if you're a Patreon, jump over to part two. If you're not, you're going to have to wait a few days. So sorry about you. But feel free to join Patreon in the link that's in these show notes. <laughs> we will make it worth your while. We do. There's, what did I post the other day? There's 127, which soon to be, that's actually not even counting this month. So there's like 129, 30 episodes that you a could lot. binge um, in our Patreon. And we branch into some different mediums as we well. We do. So it's just a lot to pique your curiosity. That's right. So feel free to do that. The link's in the show notes. And until next time, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.